0: Hello, welcome to Setting the Stage, Episode 23, Rob and Guru. We are looking for more people to interview, so if you're a DM or you know a DM that might be interested in coming on the show, you can check out more about how to apply at www.gocorral.com slash STS. And without any further ado, let's get into the show. Uh, today I'm here with Rob from the Storyteller Conclave. We had uh, your your co-host Sarah on the podcast a few episodes ago that was episode 13 mm-hmm. um so hi Rob welcome to the podcast uh,
1: thank you I'm, I'm kind of happy to be here uh, I was Sarah was really excited uh when she did uh uh her interview with you and uh I got a chance to listen to it uh just afterward and spent a little while and a couple of our own casts so my brain uh He's a little off on it, but uh, I'm excited actually to do this. It's it my campaign finally ended, so it's kind of nice. It, it gives you a little bit of a wrap up talking about it. Oh, cool. All these okay. Years.
0: Yeah, that's nice. Um. Well, before we get into the campaign, I wanted to talk about like who you are outside of D and D, just to so get more more of that sense. So, who who is sure. Rob? Wow, that's uh, a long question that
1: starts in a lot of different directions. Um, I'll will kind of stick to storytelling. Uh, so. I've been doing storytelling and in both uh, and actually i never started with D&D, but I've been doing gaming and storytelling uh, probably since I was about seven years old. Mm -hmm. Um, I wrote poetry. I've done some short stories. I've done LARPing. I've done tabletop gaming um, and it's just always been with me and I've always loved doing it. There's just a I have a natural passion for it. I did video production. Uh, for a number of years, uh, and Mm -hmm. and left that field after doing uh, both linear and nonlinear. So I got to see the genesis of, you know, going from basically one inch and a half inch videotape and beta and all that stuff, and got to see it go to digital uh, and all that change. And it always amazes me when people are like, oh, yeah, I've got this new AI tool where I just put my clips in and click one button and it edits all all the bad stuff. And I shake my fist like an old man, uh, you know, after years of doing it by hand. But uh mm-hmm. yeah. I always have a cinematic mind in my head, and that's expressed through my gaming so much more. I've always lingered into that and really wanted to always try and express that with other people. So
0: Yeah, cool. Yeah, I've I've always felt like editing is the most fun part of a video project myself. So I don't know why you would try and take that away.
1: I agree. I've oh god, I probably I did about uh ten years of video production, everything from Uh, not, I never got into movies, unfortunately, but I did a lot of, uh, commercial work. I did, uh, commercials themselves. Uh, but, uh, I loved doing all that stuff. I think what burned me out of it was doing countless numbers of weddings.
0: Uh, making each
1: one unique is hard because you end up going back to a lot of your same feelings. Uh, but they're,
0: I, they're not unique.
1: <laughs> they're not. They're not. And it, it burned me straight out of it enough that my wife and I decided we were because she helped me with them in 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 the end of our before we got married. Mm. Uh, she was doing it with me, and she was just like, "Do you want to get married normally?" I'm like, no, I want nothing to do with that industry. Can we just like go somewhere and elope? And so we ended up actually going to Sandals, which was even more hokey than
0: anything else. But yeah. they
1: did an amazing job, and we loved it. So, <laughs> okay,
0: yeah. Yeah, no, I've heard that about every every freelance videographer and photographer. What would you want to do for your career? Get out of weddings. <laughs> yes.
1: Yes. So many, so many times. So many times.
0: Yeah. Um okay, cool, cool. Um what are you doing now?
1: Oh wow. Uh a little far from that. So uh I ended up getting into computers pretty heavily and uh both on the hardware side as well as on um management uh worked with a uh, a company that did a lot of fulfillment for education did a lot of laptop initiatives with that which got me into other things i ended up getting into security i ended up getting into forensics uh which led me into working with some banks which eventually led me into working for a company that i that i work for right now and have been for the last 15 years uh as of july Uh, where um, it is a, I would say a tier one banking support company. We do both the core systems and uh, sub products that banks use for banking. And I can say that probably one out of five transactions that happen in the United States go through one of our systems, whether it's a check or an ACH or something like that, it goes through one of our backbones. Um, Mm -hmm. And, uh, I personally work with uh, a development team, and I'm their QA engineer for the QA department. And I manage about mm, 60 servers and systems, virtual wow. systems, okay, um, that I've got to maintain, as well as a, a lot of integration touch points from other development teams that reach into our system and our system reaches out to, and keep those communication channels open. So I'm busy on a pretty regular nine to five basis. And sometimes much more than that, depending on the development cycle of the year. But right, uh, right. it keeps it keeps me uh, very, very much locked into uh, IT and that side of the the house, which is, is good because I end up using a lot of those same talents, you know, doing everything that I do creatively. So, mm-hmm. yeah. which lends me to my podcast uh, that Sarah and I do. And about four years ago, we were literally sitting down for tea. And having this lengthy discussion about storytelling for like the third time, we were talking about something. And there's like, we should really record these. And because somebody would want to listen to this. And we were like, really? And, and I come from, you know, we, we both had done some production things. And I said, okay, okay, if we're going to do this, we've got to sit down and write like 25 episode ideas at the minimum. Like, if we don't have that done, we wrote like 40 in like three hours and wow. we were like okay maybe we have something here yeah and so uh we we got into it and just didn't stop we never stopped through covid we uh we figured it all out and we actually went from working with a production firm here in detroit uh that was already doing podcast to pulling it back to my house just before covid started mm-hmm. uh but we've, we've been steadily doing it every every wednesday night we record live and uh with very, very, very little editing, um, and it's been working really great, and we love it, and it's it's kind of our Wednesday night therapy. But yeah. we've learned so much in the last four years, uh, more than we we I would say than even we learned in many ways at our tables.
0: So it's been it's been really an amazing journey. Yeah, I feel like um, just talking about your writing is or storytelling in general is a very useful practice to figure out what you're doing and why you're making those choices. Yeah,
1: yeah. Um, It's interesting to get the validation that either you're doing something right, or to bounce something off of someone else who who hears it from a different direction and goes, "Eh, maybe that's not necessarily the thought that you're trying to get to. Um, Because a lot of the instincts that we have come from previous systems that we worked with, or tables that we had, and you get stuck in a lot of loops. And even uh, even the anxiety at the table after 20 years is still there. If it's a new game or a new situation that you're trying to apply and it's just nice to be able to to sit down and talk. And so every Wednesday we've been doing this and we now have a nice discord group that's really, really supportive that does all kinds of crazy stuff. And so there's a lot of good conversation and it's, it's just been really fulfilling. We love it. Cool. Cool.
0: Um. Well, let's, let's get into the, the D&D side of storytelling. Um, okay. What got you started playing D&D or role-playing games?
1: So uh, I will say that it kind of started with, um, I would say, first edition, but really it was second edition that I made my first character when mm-hmm. I was, I went over to my cousin's house um, and they were... They are of the prime age of d They, you know, were they were raised on TSR and the novels and Dragonlance and all of that. And I was just was very young and wasn't into it yet. Mm-hmm. But I get over there and I see them making characters and rolling I'm like, what's this? And so they start talking to me about it. And they made my first character. Um and uh we played like just as a little scenario, and I was enthralled by it. Flash forward probably three or four years i was in middle school and uh, on my way to middle school um in the summertime i could take my bike and i would ride past this little uh news uh magazine bookstore that was in the plaza and it was very small they had like a little candy counter right at the front door right across from it um was role-playing books that were stacked up there, and I would go in, and I would see this book with this giant mech on the cover that said Robotech, and I was enthralled. I wanted to know. I wanted to play that. I wanted to figure out what was going on there because I hadn't even seen the anime at that point. I just saw a giant robot and missiles flying around him, and it looked awesome, and uh, had no idea that Palladium was a game about math and numbers. Um,
0: Yes, (laughs) much more than uh, a lot of other games.
1: very much uh but I bought it anyways I saved up enough money as a as a kid and bought that book and then proceeded to buy pretty much the entire RoboTech catalog and play it with my friends um and I was a forever GM for them ran that like crazy um eventually I got uh I started playing other people's D&D games and started to collect D&D books got my cousins D&D books after they were kind of like in college and done with things and they were like, Hey, do you want these? And so I got all their second edition books, uh, that came along with that and, uh, started running more games and got really excited about it. Got into, uh, Vampire the Masquerade when it was, when it took off, played, you know, uh, Shadowrun, um, and got into LARPing for a while, uh, with uh, a group here in Michigan, uh, for probably about five years. Um, so I, I was role playing all through, uh, the end of middle school and high school and beyond high school and college with people and yeah. got to actually, I was, I play tested, uh, four when it first was coming out wow. uh, with some friends. And so that was kind of fun cool. that we, we had the paper printout, you know, stacks that updated and changed and <laughs> it was, it was crazy, but it was fun. Um, and, uh. I for a while I stepped away from D&D and uh fell in love with 7th C uh John Wicks wor- uh, work mm-hmm. uh first edition and just I loved that world so so much I still do still one of my favorite settings uh and I played that for a number of years with uh with my tables and ran all kinds of games in it uh and then came back to my D&D game uh, after a number of years and uh just finished it out and what's funny is my very last episode or very last session and episode of my game i didn't do D D. I i ran it in blades in the dark uh, <laughs> so we literally funny. had our had them all basically craft their characters as blades in the dark characters we ran it as a kind of one shot to finish things off because i i wanted a different feeling at the end that D couldn't give me i wanted yeah. it to be a a, 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 a more of a story book finish with a lot with some tension and blades really gave that to me so
0: yeah, uh, that's pretty cool. Um, you kind of laughed a little bit earlier when you talked about larping. Not not this time, but the first time when you mentioned it. Mm-hmm. I
1: think that I think that larping is still as much as D and D has become mainstream with like critical role and stuff. It's always comes back to you know, do you larp? Is not quite as much as like, are you a furry? You know, right. uh, But it, it it sits in that same realm that people don't quite still understand it, and yet it's probably been around almost longer uh, in, in role-playing design and in European role-playing specifically. Um, and, uh, but in, in America, like I always laugh at it because it still feels like it's in its infancy. And when I started, it was very much so. It's st- it, people still don't know a great way to run LARPs. They still try and run them like tabletop games, but with like 100 people um but it's gotten way better it's gotten way better i i laughed because uh my brain immediately remembered doing some vampire larps and vampire larps were nothing more than geeks getting to hang out with hot people uh it didn't matter you know it was it was literally nerds who were really good at the game hanging out with well dressed hot people who wanted to be goth in the most goth ways and it was fantastic i thought it was the greatest combination of culture ever and uh, so I always laugh at LARPing because it it brings a lot of different people together. Now it's bringing even more so. Now we get, you know, cosplayers who love making the craft but don't know necessarily a lot about gaming going into it. And people who don't want to sit at a table and want to be all like in the woods or doing something else, you've got those people coming. So it, it really does bring a lot of people together, but it still makes me laugh because not a lot of people like talking about it. Uh, but I think it'll. I think it's coming around to more, more mainstream. We're seeing it more often. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's funny that it was even. You know, it's even now televised more and more, because uh, what was. He just had. Uh, um, oh, I didn't know that. It was, just. I'm trying. I've lost the character name in my head. Um, but uh, yeah, it was just. It was just on TV and 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 exposé. I, I can't even remember it now off the top of my head. I'll come back to it. I'll come back to it in my mind.
0: Might have been a community episode. That wasn't recent, though.
1: I know Community had it, but uh, no, it's uh, uh, Hawkeye and Hawkeye. He had his Larpers help him. Oh, that's Uh, right.
0: Yes, I know. And
1: and it was. It just felt natural in that it was hokey, and then suddenly they were heroes. You know, and I thought that that was that was kind of a cool way of of making it, showing that you know maybe it's a little more mainstream even for the actors, because it's been amazing how many celebrities and actors are like, oh yeah, I came whatever Mm
0: -hmm. oh but that's nerdy i didn't know it was nerdy you know kind of a thing yeah that's cool it's definitely i i definitely appreciate stuff like that coming in from media sources yeah um right so you got started with uh robotech just because you liked the the picture Have you actually watched the anime since then
1: unfortunately yes um (laughs) (laughs) i watched all of it um lin May is, is a character stuck in my head and there's certain songs that I will never, ever, ever forget, no matter how much I scrub my brain with other music. Um, but it did give me an appreciation. Um, and it wasn't the first anime that I'd seen, but it did give me an appreciation for that cinematic look mm-hmm. of, of. And then tying that to my game was great because I could talk about scenes cinematically. You know, I could have them completely wrapped in my head of how I wanted the scene to look and feel uh, and and be able to try and express that with maps and and art and other things to my uh, players was all has, I mean to this day is still a challenge because I as a as someone who's done video production like there's so much that gets strapped you know that I just want to put out in a storyboard so people can see it and luckily like we we we're getting to the point in technology where it's a lot easier than it was, but it's still challenging because I'm not an artist I mean I could edit I can shoot things. But i can't draw like i've really tried hard i can't and uh but yeah this gives me an outlet for that like i can i can explain up a scene in amazing ways and and get that out and my players feel it and i love it and like i love when they all click together and can feel the moment it's great i was just gonna say i think for robotech in particular like the system itself didn't detract from the thematic feeling of what it was. And there was a lot of reasons for it detract. There's a lot of charts and tables and it 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 was clunky to start with. Um not to say that Palladium isn't a system that should people should play, but I will say as a starter system, it was not the best choice for me. Um looking back on it, and I would not put that pain on anyone else. Um mm-hmm. I did play T M N T as well. And and got through a few other Palladium properties. I played riffs for a while as well, mm-hmm. um, but just nothing felt as cinematic as Robotech did for me. And actually, funny enough, I ran a one shot for some friends uh, not too long ago. We did uh, a, a the the book uh, adventure Ghost Ship, and uh, I hadn't ran it in probably twenty five years. Oh, uh, cool! But it still it still felt fun. It still felt fun.
0: Yeah, I was I was looking it up to kind of get more info on it, because I know some Palladium stuff, but I hadn't heard of Robotech. Apparently yeah. they came out with a sort of second edition for the sequel anime series that they did too?
1: Yes. Uh, there's actually quite a bit uh, Robotech has uh, property-wise now that's out there. And I, I say property in, in, in its own brand. Uh, you can play it in Savage Worlds. There's a complete system there, because they did Robotech and Rifts in Savage Worlds. And it it works really well um i haven't played it yet but i looked at the rules and how they had it laid out and i like savage worlds i think savage worlds is pretty good as a system um but uh, i think it works exceptionally well for the uh the more anime feel that gets lets characters be characters
0: mm-hmm. uh instead of being classes you know oh uh, yeah well you're not doing uh you're not doing robotech now you're doing uh D D fifth edition is that all right Correct. That's uh well uh, technically yes. We for the for the most part this
1: this this the setting that uh uh that I had offered to talk about, which is my longest campaign that I have right, I don't right. Think I'll ever top it is was D and D. Yes, that's started. right. You said you're
0: finished, so yeah, not now, yeah. but
1: Yep. Uh just literally last month. Uh we started in uh third edition. We played a little bit of fourth, we did character conversion to fourth and, and I think we played for maybe a year, maybe a little bit more than that. Uh, and then there was a, a longer break uh, and we picked up with fifth edition when everybody was like, Hey, can we get back to this? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I, I, we ended up converting everybody over to fifth uh, and, and moving through it. And then again, the last session we did in blades in the dark, just for, for feeling.
0: Mm-hmm. Okay. So you weren't doing, was it 10 years of like actual play or were the, yes. Yeah, so, so including the breaks.
1: Uh, if you include the breaks, it's 17 years. Woo! Um, okay yeah if you don't include the breaks and you just say how many years did we play we played for 10 years we had 10 okay. years worth of sessions yeah all so right some, that is a some long sessions campaign. were every other week uh early on it was like we would play every i think about every other week and then eventually it, it lingered out till we were playing about once a month mm-hmm. uh which is why it took a lot longer so
0: oh cool cool um well yeah Let, let's talk about the world you said it's called the garu is that right that's correct. It was, originally, I had it written down as Garul with an L at the end,
1: but mm-hmm. it just kept falling off every time I would talk about it, so I left it as Garu. Um, That's uh, how language works. Yeah, it, it does. It happens that way. And I actually, I, it took me looking it up when somebody had asked me how long you ran, how long I had ran the game. I started going back through my notes and recognized that. My file structure had been copied four times through different computers because it had been so long. Right. And my original file dates and times were completely gone. But I still had um, session dates that I I'd had I'd basically handwritten into the notes. So I knew roughly when the first uh, sessions were, uh, which was 2006, 2007. Uh, but I have notes back as far as 2005. Um, so, yeah, it was interesting. Back then I was writing guru and everything, I'm like, oh, wow, I really do only call it Guru now. That's funny. Um, but yeah. Guru started out as a really basic idea of I wanted I actually titled it uh with a single phrase, and that was Vanity of the Gods. Um, and that kind of gave me a framework for how I wanted the story to feel, uh, going from beginning to end. Um and i i wanted guru to feel weird not like cthulian not like anything recognizable but literally like it's normal but just four degrees off you know Mm -hmm. um and the reason the, the the way i kind of established it back then was that uh guru is the thrown away world it is the oubliette. It's the, it's you know, the rest of the tree of the universe dumps its trash into Guru. And that's what's there. And it created life. Uh, and so the world, the, the continent shape that I used was an apple. Uh, because I felt that it was kind of like the seeds had fallen and here's where it it grew th- itself. And so I took like a sliced apple look at it uh, and created this, this world. Um, and I... I did the one thing you're not supposed to do, and I can say this because it's 17 years old that I made that mistake then, and I'll never do it again necessarily, and that is I told my players they could play whatever they wanted without without any basic limitation. Like, hey, if you want to make a character or you want to grab a character from another game that you never got to finish, go ahead, let's do this thing. And uh, it actually worked out amazingly well. I had one player who was from... Uh, uh, Forgotten Realms, effectively. He mm-hmm. was a Helrulian H- wizard. Um, uh,
0: a Hulrulian? Yes. Is that... Uh, uh, I'm confusing that with Zelda.
1: Yeah, so they were the... Uh, uh, so you had the Red Wizards uh, had originally kind of did the terrible things that they did. They had a pregenitor uh, race uh, that created the Hulrulian, uh magic... Uh, magicians uh, I guess you could see community and everything was magical there was nothing that wasn't magical and it was all high magic so like no matter what you did magic was involved and that's what he wanted he wanted this wizard who was basically bathed in magic all day long as even as an apprentice uh, to a wizard uh, and just felt that it was normal Um, and so I had him as one character I had another character who actually had come from a whole nother uh, game that uh, Sarah had actually run even more decades prior in high school and said uh, uh, and said that she hadn't really got to explore this character. And I want, she's like, I want to pull it through. And I'm like, okay. And so I went after finding this out, I went to Sarah and I was like, tell me more about this world. And this is before Sarah and I were really friends. This is when we like our inception of our friendship Uh, and so I got a little bit of, of what that world was like and I was like, okay, so this is like a, a broken world of war, uh, with like this destroyer God, uh, who, uh, who isn't there for destruction, but is there to basically level the playing field back to normal so that creation can come back around and, and do what it needs to do. So destruction is a necessary thing, Mm -hmm. uh, and there's undead, all over the place, and that upsets the balance of things. And I was like, okay, okay, I... so you're a, like a warrior cleric, and they're like, yeah, 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 and I'm like, okay, okay, I like that. And then uh, my other characters, I had a, a person who wanted to play an orc, and I said, okay, and he's like, well, what are the orcs like in your world? And I'm like, my orcs are noble. Are, are noble. They're still a tribal race, but they're the oldest race around, and in fact have made a culture, and they're Romanesque, uh in in their architecture and design almost uh it's very strong but they've they've built themselves into a nobility class that basically like their aspiring moment is to walk is to if you want to be a great orc you will ride out as a basically like a knight and go to someone else and become their the head of their guard or the head of their their army uh and take up their arms and be the best knight that you can be for them it's a very noble effort so when in the past people would see an orc on horseback in armor they would all just you know stare in awe uh, because they knew what was coming through was was wonderful you mm-hmm. know almost like a chivalrous uh, look at uh, of, of england uh but with a little bit more truth to it because they were so old and one of the the founding things is that the orcs in my world had when they left their um very well protected um, mountain range. There was a single pass that got them out of it Uh that they had built uh, a wall there. Uh, When they went out into the world, they discovered the other races and basically helped them with their strength and said, you know, we can show you things that you can't do and we can physically do things you can't do. Let's work together. Um, And that changed fundamentally how they looked at things. Um, He's like, I love that. I love all of that. I want to be a fighter. I want to be I want to become a knight. And I'm like, fantastic. We'll do that. Uh, and my other character came to me, uh, who's my wife, uh, and said, uh, Hey, I want to be a cool elf, but I want to be like, I want to be a sneaky daughter of a king. I'm like, okay, all right. So you're going to be the one of the princesses to the king of elves, uh, who is a, um, uh, a sun elf, uh, but the kingdom, uh, all of the other cultures of elves are there. You know, you've got your wild elves, your dark elves, all of them. But it's kind of like a uh, parliament that sits underneath him, and there's a lot of unrest, um, not because of, of faith or anything, because faith isn't really in this world. There's They're all just there as people. Uh, But there's still a lot of unrest about who should be in charge of certain areas and properties. And so your father, in doing the best thing he can to make sure that the family survives, uh, sends you to his friend, who is uh, an old halfling rogue. And you're going to learn at his school. And we'll pick up basically uh, at your final trials before you leave the school. And she's like, fantastic. And that was my uh, war group. Uh, I had a few other players that came in and out um but uh that was the base group of players that I had. I had those four at my table. Um and uh they they lasted a long time. I loved it. Um but I wanted guru to feel like a like this hodgepodge. Like why are the orcs noble? Like where is that coming from? Why are the well, you know, why don't we have dwarves? you know, besides the fact that none of my players decided to play a dwarf um, or why are they rare? But I wanted to have all of these little elements that seem just a bit off. And it was because guru is literally the place that things get thrown to that don't belong in the other realms, uh, particularly monsters and races. So elves that were kind of like, didn't follow Koryan, Koryan, uh, um, and the religious. Yep. my, tongue is tied
0: up it's a hard word it but is it, i feel like elvish <laughs> is purposely difficult to
1: pronounce i think it is uh but uh they they were sent away on a ship and that somehow that ship met, mystically showed up here because they weren't dead they weren't going you know it they, they wasn't part of that thing and so they the elves built this society together you know we have dark elves who don't uh follow Lolth or any of that because Faith isn't in this world. The gods don't look upon this world. Uh, In fact, I wanted this world to be godless, but I wanted it to have godlike powers that were there, creation, death, um, magic. Um, I wanted to incorporate magic as more, all of these things as a force um, that the world recognizes, but faith really didn't come into play. Um, And because of that, uh, another god who was not doing that great in the greater pantheon, Weejoss, basically saw a world full of followers that she could turn Mm -hmm. uh, to her and said, you know what? That looks like something I could take a look at. Um, And certain events happened within the world that brought her into focus um, and allowed her access to the world. And through that, she started to manipulate not only magic uh, but eventually, uh, she locked death up, uh, in a, uh, uh, in an interesting little Vi and started to slowly control the world, uh, through manipulation until she was powerful enough, uh, and in her own mind that she could instill herself as a, as a god there that they, as the world's god. Um, but the, uh, the players were good enough to find out what was going on and, and stop that process. Um... I also threw in one other thing that I wanted in the world, which was I wanted a place uh, for one of the characters who came in very early um, uh, that changed, uh, and that was uh, Sarah's character uh, was there uh, just after the beginning uh, and started out as a warrior, and the players were heading to this place uh, called Galdia, which was basically the Vegas of this Planet, or of this uh, continent, right. uh, which was the only coastal uh, uh, coastal area that was not uh, a, a really crappy place to try and land boats at, uh, and the nobles that were there, which were were basically a whole bunch of uh, uh, hodgepodge families, decided they did not want to be part of any other of the politics that were going out, whether it was with the elves or the orcs or the humans um, or you know anything else. And so they built this uh, this great wall on the edge of their city. And built the city of galdea where uh, upon entering you are not uh, you are not applied to any other laws than the laws of Galdea. and the laws of galdea are run by the seven families and that's it and they have drinking and drugs and arena fighting and all kinds of stuff but like nobody you know, you, you when you walk through those doors you are no longer part of the Elven community. you are now here in gelddea you know so you, things can be forgotten effectively um and uh but if you do break any of the laws in galdea you know they'll take care of the situation and they don't care who you are you know king queen we don't care Mm -hmm. uh so it kept a lot of other people out in particular uh the the human realms justicars which were basically these roving uh mage justice wielders who would keep the laws of the human lands in check kind of uh almost uh um, judged red ish but not as aggressive right um and uh they weren't allowed in and oftentimes would try and sneak in and of course the city hated every moment of that uh but uh sarah's character Bonesunder was a uh was a pit fighter who was addicted to potions didn't care what it was like would literally slam potions before every fight almost randomly uh, just to feel an, a surge, whether it was, you know, bull rush or giant strength or whatever. Uh, and love to play that into the character was great. Cause anytime we, they would find potions, bone center was right there grabbing them, like and, and pocketed them away because, you know, needed to have that rush again. Right. Um, and so I built up a story behind Galdea for, uh, the bone center character. Uh, and then, uh, later in the story, uh, Sarah was like, hey, do you mind if I switch characters? And there was a good transition point. And I'm like, nope, we'll pick up with a new character. Okay. And so uh, she flipped characters to Ravana, and, uh, who was an uh, ice mage, uh, a very powerful uh, uh, caster who grew up in the mountains, the cold mountains between the orc lands and the, the, the plains, and uh, was basically uh, taught by a terrible crone. Uh, who who? When she got up there, she's like, "Your mother paid me money to teach you, but I'm not going to teach you anything until you can survive the cold." And basically, leaves her out on this mountaintop outside of her house. She's like, "If you can figure out how to keep yourself warm for for the night, uh, you can come in and learn." And it's, uh, so she very hag like. Yeah, yeah. And she did, and she survived it, and learned that you know, you know, magic is something that can keep you uh, alive, but also is something that you can use for. To make sure that you stay powerful, because power is all that you need to stay alive. And that carried with Ravana for a very long time within the story. Um, But I loved that just by depicting a few things to my players, they latched onto the world very quickly, and I had solid investment almost from day one. It was great. Um, But I wanted the... I had the orcs in my head as the group of orcs that the Red Wizards had basically... Uh, teleported away. There was this giant orc force that uh, was invading from the north, and Red Wizard's Basically, one powerful Red Wizard in a single something, had just teleported them all away. And nobody knows where they went. And I had them landing in Guru right, and, and created that whole race. Um, in the case of uh, the uh, um, other two who had came from other worlds uh that gave me a direct tie for uh my uh Herulian wizard uh because he could already sense that things were different here oh. monsters weren't the same uh early on they met a a conversational beholder who would just happened to have shown up there and like a uh, w- like a chatty one like a bronze dragon yeah. or a copper yeah, dragon oh, oh almost to that degree but more to the fact of like he just wasn't full of himself in fact he was a little bit like shy and was just there to try and figure out what to do in life and it threw him and the other uh characters off except for the ones from the world they were just like we've never seen a beholder like what does it do they're like it's a horrific creature who basically is like thinks he's the, the the highest form of life and this one clearly doesn't and the point is, again, he was something that was an oddity and was sent here. And so uh that became a reoccurring theme uh, that I just kept in the background that the players slowly attached to as they they found the story and found that you know they couldn't necessarily take their their past knowledge as as players uh, from meta into the game, which no one really did. Uh, but at the same time, the few players who had those pre pre uh, precognitions in their mind were like, "Oh." This is weird, but I like it. You know, it's it's something it it keeps me on my toes, and uh, and so it it progressed. Um, so that's kind of girl in uh, in an overarching sense. Without getting deeper into the story, and obviously, you know, seventeen years of story is a lot of story.
0: Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, yeah. One of the questions I usually ask is what the the world is like physically. Um, it sounds like you have more of a where do the characters fit into the story um, focus on it and not so much a physical aspect to it. Mm-hmm. But maybe you still have an answer there. I do. Um, I think as, as the
1: story progressed, I built more, I filled in more of the blank spots that I had in the world. Mm-hmm. Um, I did have it as a very much a, a a rough sketch. I really didn't even have a lot of cities laid out. I only had locations that were necessary I stuck to the the premise that players only see as far as their as their view allows them to see. Uh-huh. So they knew about the mountains, they didn't necessarily know what cities were there until they started going there. Right. Um, so I had like the capital of the humans, which was uh, Ever sun. I had you know where I had Duncan's school and what was around Duncan's school. I had a couple of of the Justicar towers where the Justicars basically uh, house themselves and teleport to and from. Uh, and what was in them, what was keeping the the rules in check. Um and uh I had the mountains uh, that surrounded the Orc lands and what the Orc lands were like. I had the elven forest and the great uh the great tree there that is their capital. I had Galdea. Uh but it really wasn't until the players started moving through the world that I started creating the Great Plains, that the um that the halfling uh, merchants and entertainers crossed since they were like the communicational hub people of the land. Uh, I needed something that they would run across and, and feel comfortable working with. And that was the, I had half lane, basically troubadours, uh, and, uh, families that traveled in, you know, Vardo's across the land, uh, bringing goods from all over the place. Um, I had, uh, gnomes in the South who had built, uh, Plunkerton, uh, which was a, a grand clockwork city. Um, and had uh, uh, their their challenge for uh, kingship was uh, every uh, so many years, based upon the the great clock uh, that was in town. Uh, the kingship would be decided by a council of masters mm. and a a grand creation. So somebody would create something for the city uh, and in the betterment of the city, and then they the masters would look on it and say, "Yes, this is the greatest." invention you shall be the next king to bring us further forward and i wanted the gnomes to feel that way to be this 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 race that like that
0: and it played out pretty well yeah that's that's pretty cool um well i really like the idea like a a city's government being dictated by a sort of a machine but not quite it's just like a a schedule but it's not as predictable as a year yeah, exactly. the uh, the The
1: heart of it all for Galdia that I did as the story progressed, um, the players came back to it. Um, in the grander scheme of things, they came back to it after it, it had fallen, uh, and they got to see some of the inner workings and actually try and see that deep within the heart of uh, of the city was the truth. And that was that the king had made a deal with goblins that had lived under the city and had no home. And as long as they kept the fires down there and the boilers going, uh, the city would take care of them. And that actually drove a giant clock that ran pretty much all of the core mechanics. It was like the flywheel of the city. Um, And somebody had to go down there. And with the help of the goblins, turn the key, and as it wound down, basically, that was the time point that the king would the kingship would come back around. so this great clock would slow, and there'd be a specific uh kind of regulator that was spinning that would note that when it slowed down, it would engage a drive that basically gets time to pick a new king, hmm. and that would drive
0: the moment to to allow it to happen. that's pretty cool no. Yeah. Um, so if you had like an immortal king they might want to like get down there and wind the clock more in secret
1: yeah i mean there there was that um but at the same time they also had to negotiate with the goblins uh and figure out what how to best do it and realize that it was it was a partnership between the goblins and uh the the gnomes that really made all of that work because they they had a life down there, uh, but they didn't have – they couldn't surface very well. They were shunned um, by the other races, and he he saw the, – the gnomes saw, and the first gnome king who worked with the orcs to uh, to build the city saw that compassion for the races, and so he made a deal with that original tribe, and the tribe grew and grew and grew and kept digging out more tunnels underneath the gnomelands, and... Uh, and he was just like, "You know, you guys can continue to do that what's what is below is yours as long as you help us with this uh, and it it that was the way it continued from that point forward.
0: Um, one of the other things I noted uh, in the your survey was that the the races seemed kind of um almost segregated. like each of them feels like they exist very separate from the other ones. Mm-hmm. like you mentioned a lot of them being very like insular and almost isolationist. With probably yes. the exception of the halflings,
1: yeah. So the halflings were the only race that really crossed the borders. Everyone else had pre con- had these preconceptions of staying independent, and I think that came from the idea that I wanted I wanted them to feel that there was tension, but not necessarily racism, mm-hmm. until uh, until basically uh, we Joss's influence started to come into play. Um, so prior to the players actually, players' characters actually showing up, uh, Wejoss's influence had actually started, and it, it started with a previous adventuring group um, that found a, a divine prophecy that terrible things were going to happen, and so they tried to stop it, and they've just sucked at it, um, and unfortunately, that kind of brought Wejoss more into Project Picture, and it also put tension between. Uh, the races the elves locked themselves away from the orcs uh, that they had a a a light partnership with um that that kind of went sour in the mountains um and uh to put fuel on that uh part of the mountain home was the dark elves land and basically they gave up a whole section of that to, to lock themselves away from the uh the orcs and the dark elves did not like that the kin- king made that decision. Uh, so that put a lot of tension on the elves. Um, the The humans felt that they were very superior in, in their design. And uh, particularly when a specific event happened, which was the great fall of the stars, which kind of kicked off all of the events mm-hmm. uh, of the game was that uh, these uh, shards fell from the sky and the mages of the world uh, elves uh, orcs, humans, gnomes, um, uh, and even halflings came together with these shards, collected them all, and basically studied them, and those mages came to the conclusion that they could be used to create powerful orbs, again, an influence of Ouijos, uh, because she realized that she could channel the magic of the world through the orbs, and thusly through her, and so she manipulated a few key individuals, uh, and showed them how to do it, um, and, uh, the elves, one of the first orbs they created was the orb of divination because they wanted to see the future um and they saw the they saw the fu- future where the orcs uh, rose up against everyone and they decided that they were gonna lock them off uh, and did that. The uh, orcs, seeing these orbs even getting created, said, nope, we're not we're not doing this. We're not involved in this. This is gonna turn out terrible." Magic, you know, this kind of level of magic is a bad thing. You guys have a nice day and left the council and locked themselves into the mountains, knowing that this was going to go bad. Uh, the, the gnomes kind of questioned it and did their own thing, uh, took some of the crystals and decided not to create orbs out of them, but instead used them for other powerful uh, shielding. Uh, of the city, so that if uh, you know if a cataclysm did occur, or someone came to the city and started trying to re- you know wield large magics, they could use it to uh, to bubble the city in places, uh, almost creating little mythos, uh that would uh, that would dome off areas of the city and protect it from uh, magical attacks, uh, as well as help power um, golems uh, or uh, um, stone and iron uh, mimical creatures that uh, they then. Uh, used as uh, both servants and as defenders within the city walls uh, that lived well beyond the city did uh, and the people within it. Um, the, uh, the people of Galdea collected the crystals and kind of ended up selling a lot of them and trading them down in Galdea, but never really dealt with them. But what the humans did was probably the most... Turning And what kind of drove the stake into the division of everyone and that was is that they they created these not only uh, orbs of each one of the schools, but then one – this grand idea of taking the orbs and making an orb of law that would force those within its influence to obey the laws of the area. Mm-hmm. And that was a selling point for pretty much all the nobles because anybody who had their own land – They could have one of these orbs nearby and everybody would follow the laws of their land and no one would get, you know, no one ever would break out of the society. You know, we wouldn't have murders. How
0: how does it enforce that? Is it like a compulsion? Like people just can't do it? Or is there like an alert? How does it work? So uh,
1: it starts out as a compulsion. Literally the moment you walk into the influence uh, of the orb, it is not unlike the compulsions of like a paladin where you, you feel it within you. You know the laws inherently mm-hmm. and you can – you feel that pain in your gut and in your mind that something – that you're, do, you're, you're about to do something horrific. Oh, okay. um, I left it mechanically as a role-playing trope. Uh, that players could then play into and understand and I made the laws very obvious uh but I wanted it to be uh I wanted it to be very uh thematic of uh, of the humans that they were locking themselves into these laws uh and early on the players recognized that this was not going to work out for them and in the end would be a terrible idea and it was um uh, which was great to see that they 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 uh saw that telegraph coming uh but these justicars were basically wizards who would go around and make sure that these orbs of law were placed on in proper places and were doing and people were handling those who were going between areas would recognize like hey you're moving from this this place to this place and the laws do change and they would literally put up law boards to make people recognize that oh you're now in this community which the laws are a little different but not horrifically you know or you're approaching the capital and these are the laws in the capital you know and things like that um and so it just was a an area of influence but it was also uh something that could grind against the players but not in a a a very direct way of like oh you can't do anything it's more like nope the laws are just very much enforced through this methodology and if you stick around long enough and do something horrible you will tell somebody that you did it uh and they did not like staying in the human lands for for many reasons but uh they recognize the problems they're in
0: okay and how do you change the laws with the orb as registered? is registered to just like, no, or do you have to cast a spell whenever you
1: come so, up with a new
0: edict or something?
1: Well, that was the key of the justicars. So the justicars would be kind of like the go between the orbs of law and those who were ruling. Uh, and they knew how to basically imprint uh, that process, basically change the words, almost like grabbing, uh, using runic Uh, markings to imbue magic uh, of that form uh, when doing like a uh, a glyph Um, you can you know glyph of warding or something like that Mm -hmm. or even like uh, explosive glyph where like it's based upon an event it's the same type of magic where they would take the laws write them in glyphs present it to the orb in a specific way and it would pull those words off of the page and imbue them back into the orb the issue came in is when the the justicars were Disbanded basically, and and uh, taken away, and suddenly now the only laws are those that are already un- are already there. It didn't matter if the rulers had changed the laws; the orbs were enforcing the original laws, and those were now the laws. And that became a pretty critical problem at one point, <laughs> specifically with the capital city when the king passed away.
0: Right. Um, zooming back out a bit. Um, so sure. you mentioned Ouija, so I'm assuming you're using sort of like the standard 3.5 pantheon. Yes, yeah,
1: originally it was the I wanted a pantheon that was very recognizable. Um so that players could uh could rec- could see the the as I pulled names they were like, "Oh, Weejas, I remember Weejas." Okay. But I don't know the, you know, I don't know the details, but uh I wanted Weejas to be I she she sat in a position for me um that wasn't super high in the pantheon. She was, you know, fighting Bokob, you know, kind of respected, but at the same time You know, was this seductress, slightly like uh, almost snide kind of god. Like Mm -hmm. she was she didn't quite have enough power ever, uh, but always, you know, thought of herself very highly. And I'm like, "I, I, I can stand behind this character as being very villainous. And her idea that this world only mattered to her as a stepping stone to kind of A, get back at Bokob and B, have more followers and a base that she could have control over um at a world scale was just was too much it was too much of a cherry to not take uh uh and and steal so uh that's why i kind of chose her because i wanted something that was uh that was enticing and that was recognizable i had this clean image of how she would present herself to the players and how she could easily manipulate people um because she'd been doing it for so long uh and that this world was just ripe for the taking
0: okay that fits pretty well with what I consider to be part of we Jazz. Okay, so you, you described like the Law Orbs. Um, what mm-hmm. what other type of orbs are there?
1: So, when the orbs were crafted by the the Mage Council, mostly the humans, um, they made one for every one of the schools of magic that was mm-hmm. out there. So you had Abjuration, Conjuration, Necromancy, um, uh, Illusion. Um, and they did this basically at the behest, you know, hiddenly uh, from uh, Weejas because uh, she wanted to have it be a channel for her. So, whenever anybody cast that magic specifically around one of those orbs or through those orbs, it would be enhanced because it was coming from her. Uh, so, she would steal a little bit of her god energy if you will and imbue it into guru but at the same time everything was going across her at and t telephone lines effectively uh-huh. and changing the the lee lines and map of guru's magic and uh though it was very powerful and very very much something that those uh that those uh, greater mages wanted um and wanted to be able to use it was very destructive to the world because again every single time it was being used it was like they were worshiping her in a different way uh, and getting tied closer and closer to her. So as the players came across these orbs, they there there was always the the enticement that they wanted to use them. And I never had to tell them that it was always something that they were they were very interested in because I basically set up a rule very simply that the if you use a particular magic around, like for instance, abjuration, um, around it, it would enhance the spells uh, by tenfold. Uh, so if it was range or power or damage or whatever, you just take that. I would just take whatever they rolled and take the situation and expand it by ten. Uh, in one case, uh, one of the players had the Orb of Destruction uh, and uh, was dealing with a whole large uh, orc army that was about to come through from uh, uh, from a portal. Uh, we had a, a relatively bad orc who was following. Ouijos and uh, uh, getting magical items and he was going to go back to the orc lands and reclaim his place among them and get on the council. And so he's being fed a lot of lies from her and given a lot of power. Uh, and so he amassed this this subset of orc army uh, that were all outside of the wall uh, and some within. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the group was fighting them and this cleric of destruction is like, I have the ability to do this. And so did a uh, effectively like a, a a power I think it was power death power power word death or power word kill and it it went a hundred times over and she was like destroy these enemy orcs and so it shot through the portal and killed all of the orcs on the other side as well like in this mass destruction and uh the player was like, Oh crap like that's that was way more than I wanted to do. And recognized that that portal was maybe not to where she thought it was. The the player didn't. The, probably was uh, her character. He saw a glimpse of perhaps his old world on the other side. Ooh. And that maybe the destruction and this undead army might have been a little bit his fault. If this was looking the way he thinks it was and it was a bit of the past. Yeah, and that so is that, interesting.
0: <laughs> like yeah i like that
1: yeah and uh so i i i wanted it to make it so that the transition between when crowley left to this world that it wasn't just a transition of moving from one world to another but also moving through time since guru sits outside of time it really doesn't it's completely weird in where it sits uh and time is one of those things that it's weird about Uh, so it, it literally sits outside of time uh and so uh, Crowley, uh, this character's, uh, this player, uh, player's character, uh, touched an old part of their world and actually triggered events perhaps. Uh, but we, I, I left that gray and let their narration decide it and how they played it out. And it was, they, they definitely played into it through for the rest of the game. It was fantastic. That is cool. Yeah. But, uh, as I moved from three to, uh, four into five, uh, it actually got easier for me to 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 list out because the players always kind of had a hard time wrapping their head around. Like we've had these orbs and we've we've used them before and had them seen. Are like, can you just give us the mechanics so we can understand it? And I went like, yep. Under fifth edition, it's really easy. When you use one of the orbs, you roll a rand, you roll a, a d6, and it either enlarges the spell, it uh, empowers the spell, and I just used the the sorcery abilities uh, um, and just increase the the scale of it. Uh, so basically it was like wild magic almost as mm-hmm. uh, how I ended up doing it in, in fifth. And it was neat to watch them understand like, oh, wow. So it is chaotic. I'm like, oh, yeah, very much so. But it is going to do something great and of, of what you do. It will never not do the thing you want it to do, but it will do that in a way that you're not expecting. Yes. Um. And they got to see that through all of them, including the, the
0: Orb of Divination, which was an amazing scene that they, they really got to play through. So, Yeah, that, that's a pretty simple way of showing off how you enhance magic. I like that. Um, Man, you've already gone through so, so much. I, um, there's a lot. <laughs> yeah. Do so you went over like, uh, different regions, races, mm-hmm. gods a little bit, like the particular things about your campaign. Uh, mm-hmm. I guess, do you want to talk more about your campaign? I mean, I can get a little more detail. It might spur some other questions
1: for you. Um, so the campaign started effectively in two thousand six with everybody kind of pulling their characters together. I think it actually started at the beginning of two thousand seven formally, um, but literally I don't have the dates right, and I'd had to like I, I there like I don't even have references that go back that far, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. Um, and in that was basically I called that story one, and that was kind of them getting together and figuring out what was going on with, with the world uh, and meeting up um, and uh, story one encompassed uh, learning who they were, learning how they fit in the world, um, kind of mapping out some of the places, and honestly getting them invested with the people of the world. Uh, because I had fully expected that by story three, the wrap-up section of the story, I was going to kill a lot of those people. I was basically just going to give them a reason to want to go after just um and so i had it in my head i was going to give them a bunch of people that they loved and then i was going to take those people from them in a very destructive way uh and uh that was going to be a hard move and it was going to literally change the face of the world um so story 1 opened with that kind of discovery story 2 was where they understood that the orbs were not something healthy that it was bad and that we just was involved that she was her uh insertion into the world was uh getting worse uh, and that the that the villains that they were seeing were literally henchmen, uh, and that there was something greater going on underneath that. Um, and at the end of uh, at the end of story, the onset of story two, I should say, I actually read them the opening that I had written for story three, uh, which was a foretelling, uh, and I read it to the players, not the characters, um, and they got to see how I was going to open story three, which was vastly different. It was in a desert. There are no deserts that they knew about. Um, There was a boy's, it was a boy's birthday and he was being given a lamp of all things. And then there was going to be three orbs there uh, in a crate. And his grandmother was basically like, you know, we knew you would be the one to be able to do this. There was a foretelling, you know, when you became of age, you know, you would receive this lamp and be able to, to do something great with it and the moment he touched it uh out comes this genie of sorts oh, cool. uh, which remarkably looks like one of the characters familiars in a bipedial form this just giant toad uh-huh. who is wearing his master his master's robes the helulian robes uh and tells of this tale and then uh effectively resurrects the players So they knew at the beginning of story two they were going to die and come back to life to something and that it was going to be at the hand of one of their – but they didn't know how that was going to happen. They were all excited to try and get to that point to see what was going to happen. So I had telegraphed the hard move from the beginning of it. Um, Sadly, I didn't get through all the steps that I wanted to in story two before – uh, we had uh, we stopped playing for a while, and I ended up having to take a break, and the players did too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and the break got extended uh, pretty critically. Um, there were some surgeries. My wife had cancer. Oh, uh, sorry. We were, she, she 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 she's recovered. She's five years now out of it. Uh, but after the end of that, um, or near the end of that, uh, was when my players were like, "We really need to get back to this game," and I'm like, "You're not doing this just because." You know, I, I, they're like, no, we want to know what the hell happens in the story. Get your shit together. I don't care. <laughs> we don't care. We'll redo the game. Whatever needs to happen, we want the story to go forward. And I said, okay, well, I'm not doing third or fourth edition. Can we try fifth? And they're like, yeah, like this D and D Beyond thing's a thing. Let's do this. Yeah. And so, so I paid for D and D Beyond at that time, and we loaded. Actually, I didn't. Sarah, I used Sarah's initially. I had my campaign in Sarah's D and D Beyond account, and then I switched it over to my own uh, to control. Uh, and we played, and we ended up playing through COVID, uh, and I basically ended, I started with the end of story two, and and we ended up moving into story three. Um, so basically at the end of story two, uh, the players are uh, at the, uh, the the turning of the king in uh, Plunkerton, uh, the gnome city, mm-hmm. and uh, there's an attack from kobolds who, are, uh, who steal one of the orbs. Uh, that are in, that's in the city of Plunkerton, um, but they're like assassins. They're crazy, and they're like, where you know, how are their cobalt assassins? They're like, we've seen some crazy stuff in this world. Let's hunt them down, and so they end up going after them, um, and did exactly what I expected. They 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 pulled off. They let them get away, and we're like, we'll handle it. You know, we we can find these guys. It's we can track this magic. It's not going to be that big of a deal. You know, um, let's let's handle it tomorrow. Uh, and I had I had telegraphed that the uh, that the the mage character had sent his familiar in an altered form after the the kobolds, and I I was happy that that happened as a storyteller because it gave me an excuse to basically make the kobolds very 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 scared. Um, and when he recalled him, you know, they were like, "Okay, well, we're going to have to do this thing." In truth, the kobolds had always been a race that had been around, and they had kind of seen them a few times. Um, the previous Orc leader that they had wiped out uh, he had convinced them that they would be like a uh, an order uh, un- within the Orc ranks that they would be this uh, specialized crew and he had helped them because they were intelligent. Um, and uh, they effectively made they had this whole community down there and he had given them one of the orbs and some instructions on how to use it. Uh, in case something happened. And so after this attack, they were like, well, we got the orb that he wanted. You know, we've got everything set up here. You know, let's try and contact him. They were then told by the party that they had killed him, uh, that he was dead. And at that point, they were like, well, we have to pull the switch. He said, if something happens, we got to do this. And so they do the ceremony. And basically what the ceremony was, was to use the orb to cast uh, Meteor Storm. Uh, and they oh, didn't okay. understand they didn't understand magic, and so it cast it at effectively ten times stronger than it should have been at a much larger scale and it effectively created mass destruction on that side of the continent. Uh, originally hoping to wipe out whoever was around them it was basically a, a a bomb going off and so it destroyed Plunker Tin, it caused mass fires burnt the forest of the elves that was attached to it in a in a magical fire that they couldn't even stop um and changed the face of Gru basically uh, turned it to dust um and uh on that side of the country uh our continent um all the way to the mountains um so the players at the end of, you know, the end of story two and story three, when they're resurrected, they're actually resurrected 250 years later. We has had a heavy influence in the world. Um, She's not recognized yet as a God, but she's gone so far as to lock away the God of death um, completely. And she did this by basically finding his death followers, this death cult, uh, which were made up of dwarves um, who had, basically found death and were death doulas. They were people who helped others come to death comfortably. Um, because, death you know, well, yeah, you know, it's like, if you, if you know the, the concept of a doula for, uh, for birth.
0: Right. No, uh, I get it. It's a good, it's hey, a good allegory. Yeah. I just thought it's so funny. Yeah,
1: frizz. definitely. But it also sounds dwarven a little bit. So,
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Uh, and so these, all these almost uh dreaded group, um, contacted death and and i wanted death to be the raven queen of uh almost of of the the original pantheon the one who uh who was just memories in her castle that she she loved her followers she so much so that she in in the creation of herself as a god and rising of a god had to give up her powers to keep her people alive it's a beautiful story um and I saw that and I'm like, God, I need, I need that to be the death that is here. But it is only a fracture. It's a fragment of her that is here. Uh, a memory, if you will. And it's that compassion that sits at Guru. And somehow through, uh, through their comfort with death and helping others, this group of dwarves basically got to touch and see death. And they were like, we have to continue this on. Um, and of course because of that connection we is like haha I can take over as the goddess of death here if I just get this death God piece out of the way and so in a act of of exceptional violence she uh, attacked uh, had attacks happen to the tribe and finally one of the last followers uh, became basically the avatar of death this this death uh, this uh, death dragon mm-hmm. um changed form took on the powers of and mantle of death at which point we just said ha i gotcha now and locked her away in a sleep spell uh at the point of death for the uh caster so you you it was effectively uh if you've seen dogma it was a dogma move uh okay. where death comes to to the planet become takes a physical form And this devil basically says, nope, I'm going to lock you in that form and basically hold you there. Uh, And so death was held in the stasis, and while death was away, we just stepped in, and basically anybody who died, she would pull into her realm, the the oubliette of, of, uh, I think it's the crimson cube, uh, so that she would get even more followers because they were never really passing on uh and i had that be part of the world that was going on as since they left basically all of these followers were being drawn to her uh as as additional troops basically for the future and any other wars that she wanted um so chapter story three starts with them being resurrected and questioning how they came back and what's going on and the destruction of those orbs uh but more so that uh that this familiar Uh, who had touched the orb of divination saw what was going to happen and knew that these events would occur and basically said, you know, it gained a higher level of intelligence uh, that after so many years and being away from his master and surviving the cataclysm, um, eventually became sentient, bipedal, uh, studied magic, trying to figure out how to bring back his friends and his Mm -hmm. master and 250 years later he got all the pieces right wrote a fake prophecy that people would follow and made a deal with Wejos to get enough power uh to be able to bring them back uh only to be locked up himself uh by Wejos and watching over this undead dragon uh that was the that was death itself uh and so he he used his abilities to basically bring his friends back and say like i've left things For you to find, and I know you're all smart enough to go do it, stop her, destroy the orbs. And uh, so they wake up in this tent at this kid's birthday, basically. Mm -hmm. And uh, he has no idea what's going on. They have no idea what's going on. And uh, it basically opens there. And so the final story is them figuring out what had happened in the last 250 years, kind of coming to terms with everyone they know virtually being gone and finding echoes of them or memories of them or some of their relics and things uh in other places uh but at the same time knowing the truth of what's really happening and uh using this like hidden uh steps that were left by uh the familiar uh exor uh funny enough um that uh, uh led them back to him uh, and the truth of what was going on, and building armies and rebuilding the communities behind them—the elves, the orcs, everything—you uh, so, know, each one of the characters had something to do that was meaningful to them in the final end of the story. I had uh, the uh, the daughter of the king return to the elven lands and see that everything had burned uh, in a in a basically civil war that it broke out during the cataclysm because they they thought they saw an opportunity to seize power mm-hmm. um and she knew her family died there and so she returned and kind of retook the throne but at the same time said we're stopping this we're not doing this anymore i'm breaking the crown and giving you all equal power uh for those elves that are left and we're all going to rebuild this together um and uh the head of the orcs had returned to his lands to find his people Passing through a gateway to some to a better place, which is actually just going to Ouijos, uh, because the their elder had been completely corrupted, and having to save his people, break apart the gate, try and figure out how he was going to do it, uh, to return them um, and gain regain control of what was going on in the Orc Lands, uh, and kind of become a new council member there, uh, and uh, stop uh, undo the damage of. Uh, the previous orc leader who had been there, uh, and and locked them all away in the mountains, uh, away from people. Um, I had the uh, had Crowley, the the cleric of destruction, uh, basically has followers when she comes back or when he comes back, uh, uh, and uh, has to deal with the fact that he's he's kind of being called the god of destruction for what he had done, but he doesn't want that. Uh, he doesn't want to be that, like, that's, that's not a, a healthy thing, and so he has to kind of come to terms with it, that he's, what he wants to be and what he needs to be, and at the same time, uh, use his abilities for better, for, for balance, rather than destruction. Um, Ravanna having to come to terms with the fact that, like, her whole family's gone, she's, you know, the whole purpose for her being there, being this guy, is not working out for her, but at the same time, there's a lot of power in and the fact that magic is is turned upside down mm-hmm. um she finds uh she finds a family because uh at the very beginning the first episode of uh, story 3 they find that there's a group of people who have been masquerading as them that had learned about the uh prophecy that they would return this denther 5 would return and uh so a fake team of denther 5 basically had been riding on their coattails and you know, doing things and, and and making money and and being basically a, a fake group shows up at the birthday. Like, you know, you said the Denther Five were going to be here, and here we are. And who are those guys? And so you had the the the, the non-Denther Five, the, the the doubles there, and she met with hers, uh, who has been masquerading as Ravana for years, and in fact, found love and a child. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she ends up in a city. Or uh, in this this mountain town. And has a little girl run up to her. And call her mommy. And she doesn't know how to take it. And so she realizes she has a family. And he, obviously. The, the gentleman who's there. Recognizes that she's not the same person. Even though they hadn't seen her for years. This fake Ravana. But recognizes that there's something. And she ends up. Building a life. Uh, as the story goes on. With, with them and finding that that little girl is exceptionally powerful and tied to magic directly, uh, and wonders whether or not she's a key to the world being calm again and and magic returning the way it should because she's the first wild sorcerer that can use the old magic, Mm -hmm. and that's not tied to Weejoss. And so she's she's thrown between teaching her magic and keeping her from what's going on so that she doesn't get hurt, uh, rebinding her to the world. So... Yeah, it's it was a lot of tying of the characters, but I mean, you do it for 10 years, eventually you figure out everybody's weakness as players and their characters and you, you throw it all together. And uh it was fun. It's fun right to the to the very very end of of seeing how things turn because they did make it all the way to to see uh the the undead dragon and free it, uh effectively releasing it from its bonds. Uh, and allowing the the original caster to die and for death to form and fight back Weejoss easily. Uh, And uh, at that point, Weejoss was weak because they had destroyed so many of the orbs. There was only one orb left, and it was the Orb of Necromancy. Uh Uh, And they were literally breaking it in the room where everything was. And the moment that that was broken, it was no longer channeling death. It was easy for death to step in and say, no, go away. Um, this isn't your world. This isn't your memories. And we just left realizing that she had she had lost her foot foothold. Mm-hmm. And uh instead of taking it worse, she returned to her realm. Uh, and of course they were all like, Yeah, uh we're we're happy to see things coming to a closure. But uh yeah, it was, it was a very powerful finish. It was
0: great. Yeah, yeah, that does sound like very fulfilling. Um is there anything else you wanted to add? I think the the best thing I could
1: add to this was... Uh, I'll say two things. One, um, I am glad that I started the world with a lot of blanks places. I think it would have been foolish of me to go and fill in the map. And I mm-hmm. didn't do it intentionally uh, when I started the world. I, I started the world and, and the campaign with single lines. I wanted Garou to feel weird. Just a little off-center. Enough that it made players who had known D &D and had known the monster manual and played in games feel that something wasn't right but it wasn't so far off that they were like questioning that i was fudging roles or something like that um that it was all it was all just narrative shift. like like the best one that i can say is like a beholder being unsure of itself and kind of chatty and glad to meet people you know that doesn't seem normal Right. right Um, orcs being noble, you know, being, being like a, a chivalrous knight. Where where does that come from, right? Um, all of that type of thing, I wanted to just feel a little bit off. And then as far as the the plot itself, I, I wanted vanity to be, the vanity of the god to be front and center. I wanted them to feel that this was all done through vanity, of them just the, the, no understanding and... I think I achieved both of those exceptionally well. And by keeping those blank places, it made it much easier later on down the line to feel comfortable with filling it in with whatever the players thought should be there Mm -hmm. or talked about being there. And I, I think in world building, that's one of the best things you can do, regardless of the size and scale. I love that there are new systems out there right now that encourage right from day one like here's the map you tell me what's in this city who runs this district you know um or things like that so that the players have their investment the like before dice hit the table like you're not building it with by telling them who an npc is and then wondering if they're attaching to that person or not they're they're already attached they know the baker's name because they told you the baker's name you know um and i i, I think that was one of the greatest things that i that I did in this that made it really feel great all the way to the end. Um, there were tons of times when I second-guessed myself, uh, especially with the world, uh, that I that I felt like I screwed up and I had to rewrite sections. Um, and then through my notes, <laughs> looking back at them, I, I laugh because there are whole parts that I read out of the past, stories from story one and story two, that are just whole sections of stuff that I never used, the players never knew about, and that I just threw out completely because they it wasn't relevant. And I had to remember, that's okay. Just just toss it. If you've talked about it to your players, it goes in bold print. And that's, that's a fact. Mm-hmm. But if it's, if it's something that's, that you've stood in the shower and thought about, put it in italics, set it to the side. Maybe they'll find it, maybe they won't. You know, Don't get rid of it, because it may not be a terrible idea. I loved building the world. I loved having my players discover the world. And I feel, I felt kind of honored by the end that it had gone as long as it did. The other thing that really helped me seal it, I think, the most was for Story 3, um, I had picked a song from, uh, funny enough, off of the League of Legends soundtrack, oh. uh, because they have some amazingly yes, epic music. Yes, I've used music. some of those, too. Um, and uh, you have to pardon me, I'm actually getting a little choked up about this, because whenever I think about it, it's... It really meant a lot and that mm-hmm. was um i picked the song uh legends never die mm-hmm. and i would listen to it pretty much like a day or two before every time i ran a story um so that i would get into the mind frame of my players of how i wanted them to feel
0: yeah. yeah and
1: i think that's i think if you can find an inspiration a piece of art a piece of music Something that helps you as a storyteller get back to your world. And, like, uh, one of the people that we had interviewed on our podcast used the term the metal. Like, if you can find the metal of your world, like, what makes your world amazing to you as a storyteller? Mm -hmm. And then you can bind, like, wrap a rubber band around that and stick to it something, like a song or a piece of art or something. And you can look at it, even if your players never see it and sometimes it's better that they don't because you have to kind of then tell them about that and just push through that feeling to them every time you run a session if you can just get another piece of it out there by the end they're bathing in it and that's that's one of the greatest things you can do i think and that's i feel like i did it and i love it
0: yeah cool yeah that that type of emotional storytelling is um it can feel very strong. Yeah. yeah. Uh, anything else, or are you all, you all set? No, I think I think the only thing I will say is is that I am glad I ended it not in D anD D and that I ended it in Blades in the Dark. Are you familiar with Blades? Yes. Yes, I played Blades. Um, I'm thinking of doing a Forged in the Dark for my next um, my next campaign.
1: Yeah. I I actually was totally unfamiliar till this last year uh, about Blades in the Dark. Like people had talked about it around me. I'd played other. Uh, powered by the Apocalypse games, I kind of feel like it. Um, but until I actually got a chance to to play around with the rules and look at it, I was like, I, I don't know if it'll work. And then I saw some amazing playthroughs. I saw some uh, some people talk about it in a, a totally different light. And it felt like it was the the perfect thing I needed. And I wanted... My players were dying to get out of combat. They were 10th level. It was balance at that point is exceptionally challenging to mm-hmm. try and make yeah. uh feel right and i did not want the final fight with the boss to feel like a slog fest i didn't want a i didn't want things to feel sloggy and then a single flubbed roll or overpowered roll to to change everything and make it feel like crap i wanted them to feel stressed but they were still big damn heroes and 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 professionals at what they did and blades really does that. Blades takes away the the concept, uh, especially if you play with just the base design of it. Um, that concept that you're going to fail, and the answer is you're not going to fail because you're you're a legend at what you do. You're going to do something else to make sure it happens. It may hurt you. It may hurt a friend. Mm-hmm. You know that that concept of push really latched onto me, and yeah. it it took. What I, All I had to do for them for the last session was um, explain the rules for about five minutes. We ended up starting with a side scenario that one of the players actually had asked to do, which was they wanted to go back to find the final orb, um, and uh, or the second-to-last orb, so they could get rid of it. Of and so they, they did a, a side, kind of a side quest to go get it, which was at the site of the meteor where the meteor storm launched from and they found the kobolds uh and this old oak tree that had corruption in it uh and uh that's where the orb was the orb was hidden and so they did the whole thing through using the blades in the dark rolls of getting it out of there and it was beautiful they fell right into place the narration from them came out smooth i and again because blades plays the way it does really i'm not so all I'm doing is a little bit of narration and I'm letting them let the cards fall where they do um and once they saw that the final fight it was like okay how are you guys going to do this so like you know we know it's we know it's in this hidden chamber because we got some information about that from somebody else so let's teleport near the top of the chamber and we'll will come in from the top and they won't you know the cultists won't know that we're there and we'll be able to sneak down and unlock the dragon and, and get out of there. And the first role, that initial engagement roll, they flubbed. <laughs> and so the teleport failed. I said, you tell me how the teleport fails and how you recover. And they're like, and literally the one character was just like, instead of teleporting the top, we actually teleport 10 feet underneath that. So we're falling. We're in free fall. Ooh. And I went, I love it. they they're like, you guys are in free fall. How are you gonna handle this? You know, and it was it was wonderful. They they handled it amazingly again. The the way they handled the the consequences and pushing and making roles to help other people. Um and then moving through the, the semi combat and how they were using their magic. Because again, it's just a single magic role uh for all magic, uh for their abilities. Um uh and it was just it was neat how quickly they came into the narrative of it and told me how the whole scenario rolled out in the end. And I loved it. I loved that feeling. And I, I encourage people to stick with your world. But if you need to change systems because it doesn't feel right, to it. Like, it can feel incredible if, if, you, if you just want to move to narration. If you need to get out of the slog of combat, do it. Move to something else. Try it. You, you never know how amazing it can feel.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's some really good advice. And uh yeah, I would say D&D probably isn't the right system to get that feel. You really have to move outside of those more like mechanical systems into something that is more story focused. You still can have mm-hmm. that kind of feel with well, D&D, but it's not really designed for it. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's harder to get there and it's
1: it's your, your players have to, you know, have been playing for as long as they have. I mean, if they get up to fifth level, 10th level, whatever, right? They have these sheets. They've They've invested as people into all this time to get all these cool things. Mm-hmm. You almost don't want to take those cool things away from them. Right. You know, and by giving them what, you know, four rounds of combat at most that took, that takes, you know, two hours to get through. It doesn't feel like a reward at that point for all that effort.
0: Well, it it can, but it, you know it varies between groups.
1: <laughs> that is true. That is true. It depends. It, it if if you're playing OSR, it can feel amazing. Uh, but uh, if you're if you're if you're leaning more into the story
0: aspect and getting through thing, it can be very, very, very painful. Yeah. All right. Well, uh, thanks, Rob. This has been really cool. Um, I, I think you've got a really good campaign that you've finished up, and I'm hoping that the next one is uh, just as fun. Yeah, I'm
1: I'm taking a little time off and playing some games with that other people are running, but uh-huh. uh, yeah, I've I already, of course, like any good storyteller, I've I've got an idea already latched into my brain, and I'm I'm working on it, and I'm probably far too much than I should, but uh, I, I'm I'm doing my best to try and stay away from it, just just long enough that I can I can enjoy myself for a little while and ever breather. Mm-hmm. So, but this has been fantastic. I I appreciate the time. It's wonderful walking back through all the memories and talking about it.
0: Yeah, yeah. Um, I'm glad we could do that with you, and uh, yeah, Um, good luck with whatever you're doing next. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you.